And today we begin a series in the book of Revelation, uh, focusing on the letters to the seven churches. So uh, the genesis of this sermon series was uh, an elders meeting uh, earlier this year. We were discussing uh, what sermon series to do while Tom was gone, and we're talking about doing something that focused on uh, the health of the church, our corporate holiness, and how to assess those things. And we ended up at this series So these letters come at the beginning of the book of Revelation, and uh, these are are letters from Jesus to the church that represent his his evaluation of what is good and what is bad in these uh, churches. So these were actual churches in historical cities in modern-day Turkey, Uh, but in many ways, these churches uh, represent the church of all time so that the virtues they demonstrated, as well as the flaws that marked them, are really shared in common by churches of every age. So we can take these letters together and uh, use them to assess uh, the health, the progress in faith and holiness of our church and of ourselves individually. So we'll begin with the first of these letters actually next week. Uh, but this week, uh, this morning, our task is to assess the nature of the book of Revelation. So before we begin going through those letters, Uh, We want to remember the context in which they're given. What is the book of Revelation? So you may know some of what's in this book. Uh, Of course, there are these seven letters to the churches. There are the seals of seven scrolls that are open, pronouncing judgment on earth. After that, there are seven trumpets that sound, uh, proclaiming even more judgment to come on earth. And then following that, there are seven great bowls of judgment that are poured out on earth. There are four horsemen, there are three beasts, there's a dragon pursuing a woman, there's the great battle of Armageddon, and then finally there's this triumphant vision of a great king on a white horse who returns in divine fury to eliminate his enemies and finally establish peace and justice on earth. So you may know some of these details of what's in the book, but we still have to ask, what is the book of Revelation? You may also be able to describe your response to what's here. You may think it's daunting or complex, perhaps horrifying or doomsday-ish, apocalyptic. Others may think it's exhilarating and inspiring. And still others may say that it's uh, irrelevant or has nothing to do with my life. It's um, too hard to understand. I'll just stick with the other 65 books and let Revelation be And certainly, given the way that some teachers talk about the book of Revelation, you might not be blamed for wanting to um, leave it aside. G.K. Chesterton once remarked that, although St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. How would you describe your response to the book of Revelation? Do you enjoy it? Do you avoid it? Well, we can say what's in it, we can describe our response to it, but again, we have to ask, what is it? All right, one other digression here. Chapter 1, verse 3, tells us the motivation for the book of Revelation, why it was given. Uh, John says, this is a book for blessing. Chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is a book for blessing. 
Uh, John says that the one who reads it or hears it and then lives out the message that's here will be blessed. And to be blessed means to live a truly good life, to find deep satisfaction or to enjoy God's favor. And John says the one who reads Revelation will find this blessing. You remember the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says the one who lives this way will find true blessing. Uh, They'll find deep satisfaction. And and John says the same kind of thing about the book of Revelation. Living according to what we have here uh, leads to blessing. This is interesting, isn't it? Because um, those of you who do know something of what's in the book of Revelation often may think of it as a, a book of dark mystery and symbolism. You might think the trick is not trying to live it out. The trick with the book of Revelation is trying to decipher it and find out where all these events fit on the timeline, right? But that's not it. Uh, Revelation is not primarily for predicting the future of countries in the Middle East. Revelation is for the church, for the people of God to experience the power of the reigning Christ right now in our midst. It's a book for blessing. This is why it's been given. So we have to read and try to understand Revelation in a way that leads to blessing. Once again, we're left with our question, what is the book of Revelation? And here's how I think we should answer that question this morning on the basis of Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. This book is a revelation of Jesus Christ for today, for the church. This book is a revelation of Jesus Christ for today, for the church. So, first of all, this vision is a vision of Jesus. Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Jesus. It is both from Jesus to John and it's about Jesus. So of Jesus means it's from him and about him. Now, beginning in verse 9, John introduces himself to us and describes what he saw. He describes himself in verse 9 as a brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. A brother and a partner. So John knows and loves the churches that he's writing to. Uh, His concern reaches not only to his own local church that he would have uh, met with each week, but also to these churches in the surrounding region, the churches mentioned here in verse 11. These are the churches that John pastored. So we'll be studying John's three short letters uh, on Wednesday nights this fall in our adult Bible studies. And those letters were probably uh, passed around and read by these same churches here. These were the churches that he cared for, that he pastored. So John is a pastor, and he's writing to give encouragement to these churches. Why does this detail matter? Well, because it shows us that while John's head may seem to be in the clouds, his feet are firmly fixed on earth with a, a personal attachment and care for these churches, uh, the, these young churches who are facing the challenge of long-term existence, how will they patiently endure through tribulation? How will the church survive marginalization and ostracism from society? What truths uh, will sustain them through these things? After all, John says that he himself is writing from exile on the island of Patmos. He says, because of the word of God. 
and the testimony of Jesus. And the churches that he's writing to can expect similar treatment. So he writes as a brother and a partner to encourage them. Well, having identified himself, John next describes what he saw, this vision. He actually heard it first, so there was a voice like a trumpet, this triumphant announcing sort of voice that tells John, write what you see. And then he turns and he sees it. There are these seven giant golden lampstands, and in the middle of them, an unbelievable figure, he says, like a son of man. Now, the title Son of Man, uh, when it's used in the New Testament, always has the Old Testament prophet Daniel as its background. So Daniel had a vision similar to John's, and in Daniel chapter 7, he describes that vision this way. Here's, Here's Daniel's vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So when John says that this figure that he's saying is like a son of man, He's trying to create in our minds this impression of a cosmic ruler who receives eternal dominion and glory. Someone who's so great that he draws the clouds of heaven with him as he walks. But don't forget who this is. John is seeing Jesus. Uh, This is the man of sorrows. The lamb led to slaughter. This is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The carpenter of Galilee, the friend of sinners. But here John is seeing a different sort of Jesus so that he barely has words to describe him. He resorts to imagery that's actually hard for us to envision. What does it mean that his eyes were like flames of fire or that his feet were like polished bronze and that there was a sword coming out of his mouth? And these stars, he holds seven stars in his right hand. These aren't um, five-point Twinkle, twinkle stars. These are cosmic, gaseous balls of fire. And seven of them together are dwarfed in their scope by the magnitude of this vision of Jesus. This Jesus is different than the Gospels. Now, remember John was one of the first disciples. So he he walked with Jesus. This was an old friend who had been gone for a long time and Yet John's understanding of who Jesus is now expands in an instant. And John has the right idea about how to respond when he sees him. He says, I fell at his feet as though dead. At first, this portrayal of Jesus disturbs John. He seems to be terrified. And there's something right about that. We often try to imagine Jesus in our minds. To have a relationship with Jesus, we want to have some concept of him in our minds. And often our minds maybe normally go to some kind of comforting idea. He's the one who forgives my sin. He's gentle and patient. He'd certainly never raise his voice at me. But John 
sees a Jesus that is swinging a sword from his mouth. So if, if you were to see a man beaten and bloodied, hanging on a cross, you might not be disturbed. He would pose no threat to you. But John sees a sword coming out of his mouth. He doesn't saunter casually into his presence and give him a slap on the back. He falls at his feet as though dead. So think for a moment about the implications of this vision. You know, these, these churches that John is writing to, things are not going well for them. Their lives, their jeopardy, their, their future seem to be in jeopardy uh, because of their identifying with Jesus. You know, life is hostile for them. But then this vision of Jesus is extremely helpful to know that Jesus is holding seven stars in his hand. So, life seems to be spinning out of control. Or maybe on a smaller scale for you, you're just really dissatisfied with life. But then, you know, John is on the island of Patmos in exile. And he has this vision of Jesus. And, and he's not the same. He now understands something that changes his perspective on everything. So what you know about life may be that it's hard and painful, and maybe for you it's just it's routine and dissatisfying, or perhaps life for you is unpredictable and full of anxiety. But now you have this vision of Jesus, and in addition to what you know about your life, now you know three other things. Number one, you know that Jesus is holding seven stars in his hand. And that's good news, because if Jesus can hold seven stars and sustain the universe, then this Jesus has the controlling influence over every circumstance and detail of your life. So number one, Jesus is in control now. Number two, Jesus wins in the end. So you see these eyes of fire and the sword and the voice like many waters and The Son of Man is the one who gets eternal glory and dominion and he reigns eternally so that all nations and tongues worship him in the end. Whatever your life may look like right now, your king wins in the end. And number three, best of all, you don't need to fear him. Despite the sword in his mouth, Jesus says to John, fear not. Once you've been disturbed by Jesus, like John was, that is, once you've learned to repent of sin, turn away from it, and fall down at His feet as though dead, worship Him and call Him Lord. When you've learned to respond to Jesus like that, then here's how Jesus responds to you. Fear not. So, What is the book of Revelation? Well, perhaps more than anything else, we should say that it is a vision of Jesus. It's both from him and it's about him. He is the central figure all throughout the book. But secondly, um, Revelation is a vision of Jesus for today. So look again at how Jesus responds to John, beginning at the end of verse 17. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. 
I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So let's start with verse 19. Uh, 119 is widely considered to be the interpretive key of the book of Revelation. Almost everyone agrees about that. The only problem is that there's a whole lot of disagreement about what exactly the interpretive key to the book of Revelation means. So some believe that uh, this is like a miniature table of contents for what follows. It's like a sequential uh, chronological outline of Revelation. So first, um, Jesus says to John, write what you have seen. And that's basically the vision of chapter 1. And then Jesus says to John, second, write the things that are. It would be the, the current uh, age, the, the church age, the letters of chapters 2 and 3, basically. And then third, Jesus says, write the things that are to take place after this. And that would be chapter 4 all the way through to the end of the book. So this is a chronological view where basically everything that happens in the book of Revelation, uh, each thing happens after, historically after, later than uh, those things that preceded it. So chapter 1 is in the past, that's John's time. Chapter 2 is in the present, chapter 3 as well. And then chapter 4 all the way through to the end, those things are exclusively in, in the future. But I think there's a better way of understanding verse 19. Uh, Verse 19 isn't a table of contents describing um, the sequence of the events that follow or the structure of the book of Revelation. Uh, Instead, John is writing about all the things that he has seen. And those include things that that have already happened as well as things that remain to happen. So the things that John sees are the kinds of things that have already begun and have not yet reached their conclusion. So the whole book of Revelation then has this already, not yet sort of feel to it. So there's not a neat, orderly um, timeline or sequence within the book of Revelation, but rather uh, these visions are impressionistic. They're painting a picture of what things look like during the days between the first coming of Christ while we're awaiting the second coming. So maybe an example of this this contrast will will help. So throughout Revelation, John describes all sorts of misery on earth. There's wars and famines and diseases. There's putrid water and there's unceasing violence and senseless uh, wars. There's earthquakes, massive storms, all these things. And in In fact, in chapter 7, John refers to these things as the great tribulation. But tribulation, as John understands it, isn't a future seven-year event. It's a present reality. So that's why John says in chapter 1, verse 9 to these churches, I am your brother and partner in the tribulation. And John had heard that term from Jesus. In John's gospel, he records these words from Jesus that, Jesus spoke to John and the rest of the disciples. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And then in the book of Acts, uh, Luke records that after the stoning of Stephen, there arose on that day a great tribulation against the church. 
So these and, and many other passages in the New Testament show that the New Testament writers uniformly expected suffering and hardship and tribulation to be the common experience of believers throughout our earthly existence until Christ returns. So tribulation then is not something that Christians are snatched out of in the future, but rather something that we live through in the present. And it's what we're all living through right now, although maybe you, like me, have never experienced much devastation in your own life from the kinds of things that we read about in the book of Revelation. But historically, globally, we are Christian anomalies. There's a movie that uh, debuted this past week, one time showing, I think it'll show again next week actually, but it's called The Insanity of God. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, It portrays the suffering of Christians around the world, our brothers and sisters in places like North Africa and Central Asia who are experiencing many of the kinds of things we see in Revelation regularly. So the kinds of problems that we Christians have here in Raleigh are things like this. Here are the decisions we face. You know, which of the many healthy churches in Raleigh should I attend? What's my personal worship style? And this semester, should I be involved in care group and Bible studies or just one or the other? But people in these other countries are making life and death decisions. You know, so every encounter they have to speak of Jesus with someone who may be seeking, maybe their last encounter of that sort. And each time they meet another follower of Christ, they may be uncovered and killed on the spot or subjected to something even worse than death. And there are people in our own church here who are thinking about going to places like that and praying and asking God if he's leading them there. So Danny and Lauren uh, will share at the family meeting this coming Wednesday night about how God has been moving in their hearts and directing them overseas. Uh, and I'd encourage you to come and, and listen to what God's been doing in them. And anyways, in places like this around the world, Christians are much more familiar with revelation-like tribulation. And for Christians and churches in the midst of tribulation, then knowing who Jesus is today is powerful. You know, back to verse 17. Here's who Jesus says he is today. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He has the keys of death, which means he has the authority. He has authority over death. This is the Christian message. Jesus died, but now lives. So in the letter of the Hebrews, it says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivers all those who through fear of death We're subject to lifelong slavery. We are enslaved to the fear of death. You want freedom from enslavement? Go to the one who has the keys. He has overcome death. In John's Gospel, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He's claiming to be the one who has put death to death and who disarms the common enemy of humanity. 
So our enemy, it's not flesh and blood. Our enemy is death, but Jesus is resurrection and life. So if you want life, if you want to be prepared for the day of death, then you want to know Jesus. He was God in the flesh, and he forged a pathway through death and out the other side. He has overcome death. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is saying that he himself is the pathway through death to life on the other side. He is the victor over death. And in this sense, this truth about him is basically an invitation for everyone. Follow me. Walk this path. Death is not daunting because Christ has gone through it and now lives forever. So, Revelation may be a book about the end, but it's useful for right now because we learn in Revelation that the end has actually already begun. It's not all future, it's all now. And the Jesus that John has just described isn't merely one who will be at some point in the future as if we're just waiting and hoping our king returns. No, he is the Christ who reigns now. He is seated on his throne and his promises cannot be turned back. So from what we see in this passage, then Revelation is a vision of Jesus. It's both from him and about him. And it is a vision for today. And third, it is a vision for the church. It's a vision for the church. So finally, then we come to verse 20, where Jesus continues his instruction to John. He says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So remember from John's vision that Jesus is standing in the midst of the lampstands. These are his churches, and he's holding seven stars. So now Jesus explains this mystery. Not mystery in the sense that it can't be figured out, but mystery, the way the New Testament generally uses the term, means it's something that was previously unknown, uh, but now has been revealed. Jesus is revealing to him what it means. And he tells John that the lampstands are the churches, and the stars are the angels of those seven churches. Does that clarify things for you? Leaves some questions, right? Why lampstands? Why stars? Why angels? So Jesus says that the stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, angels are mentioned all over Scripture, but we're never really given clear teaching on angels. So despite their frequent appearance, they still remain a kind of unusual or puzzling sort of piece of Christian doctrine. So for this reason, some would say that Christian teaching just wouldn't suffer at all if we just bypass angels uh, completely. But angels are all over the Bible. We can't just skirt around inconvenient teaching. So here angels are representing the churches. Now, some treat this mention of angels unfairly, I think, with no real support, saying that the angels are actually the senior pastors of these congregations. All of us assistant pastors are pretty certain it was a senior pastor who came up with that view. 
more likely uh, these are actually heavenly angels. Exactly what it sounds like. John mentions angels 75 times in the book of Revelation without exception referring to heavenly beings, not humans. So it wouldn't really be reasonable to think that he means anything other than that here. So each church has its own assigned angel. This doesn't necessarily mean that every church has its own guardian angel, although there are stranger things than that in the book of Revelation. But these angels are heavenly beings. And Jesus, for reasons not revealed here, holds them accountable uh, for the messages that are being delivered to these churches that they represent. So that's the angels. Now the lampstands. Why are the churches uh, represented as lampstands? Well, in John's Gospel, uh, he records Jesus saying this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. But at the same time, Jesus tells his followers You are the light of the world. Let your light shine like a lamp before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So in John's vision, the imagery of the church as lampstands suggests that collectively the people of Jesus, those who follow him, are responsible to be proclaiming the message of Jesus. The church has the light of the knowledge of the light of Jesus Christ, and we must proclaim it. So here's the question then. For churches that are called to hold forth the light of Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering and tribulation, what motivation is there for this? Let me ask you, what would compel you to such radical self-abandonment that enters into tribulation in order to be the light that brings the light of Jesus Christ to the nations. What would lead to that kind of thing? The only answer is seeing Jesus like John saw him. Having this understanding of who he is. Knowing that he reigns in heaven now and he wins in the end. This vision then is the basis of the seven letters. So that those letters are really just personal application of this vision of Jesus. So before we conclude then, let me just give you a quick preview of the three themes of these seven letters that we'll be looking at over the next seven weeks. So there are seven letters, there are three themes uh, that run all the way through. First, there is seduction from inside. There's seduction from inside. So these churches are facing corrosive influence from the inside. There's false teaching and immoral living that is a constant threat to the church because it undermines belief in the only good news. Now, in some of these churches, the teaching is being rejected and they're commended for this. But in other churches, it's being tolerated. So the letters then are collectively a call to always cherish the gospel and remember that Jesus died and yet lives forever. 
and then reject any kind of teaching that undermines those truths. So there's seduction from the inside. And then second, there are pressures from outside. There are pressures from outside. So in Ephesus, people are being put in the arena with wild beasts. And in Pergamum, uh, Antipas was executed for not giving up his faith. So the letters acknowledge this kind of pressure to conform, to reject Jesus, and yet encourage persistence in faith in the face of such pressures. Now, these are the kinds of pressures, as we've said, that remain um, common for Christians around the globe and yet distant, perhaps even unimaginable uh, for us. And yet, there is some overlap with our own experience. They were being excluded from positions of honor in society. They were being ostracized. And increasingly, for Christians in North America, we're beginning to feel similar kinds of exclusion. And the call of the letters is to live for the approval of Jesus rather than the affirmation of society, not to conform to the pressures from outside. And then third, there is reward for the overcomer. There is reward for the overcomer. So every one of these letters ends with a promise. The promise goes something like this, to the one who conquers, I will give... And then Jesus promises things that he will give to those who overcome or conquer. And the promises are staggering. Basically, all the things that Jesus receives as the Son of Man, the eternal kingdom and dominion and reign, he shares those rewards with the ones who follow him. And if you heed his warnings and hold to his promises, then you will reach that reward. So for us, we must think less about the price that we have to pay and more about the prize that we have to win. The letters are calling the churches to think to the future, to look to what lies ahead. There are rewards for the overcomer. So Revelation The vision of Jesus for today, for the church, teaches us how to be overcomers. Believe in this Jesus. The one who says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That is the good news of Christianity in less than ten words. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. He is in control now. He wins in the end. And those who worship him do not need to fear him. So we have great encouragement in these letters for us. So let's end now by giving thanks for the one who died but is now alive forevermore. Father, we give thanks. We are so thankful for Christ. You sent him to save sinners. We all have benefited by your gracious offer. So now as we turn our attention to the table, we are thankful for his body broken for us. His blood shed for us. Having read of this vision of Jesus, Father, I pray that you, 
by your spirit would renew our minds, change our hearts, that we, like John, might worship, might fall at his feet. As we gather as one around the table, would you deepen thanksgiving and celebration in our hearts for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.